Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. And this morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day and the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do and if you do any of these 10 things he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time but he loves you He loves you and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all powerful, all perfect, all knowing and all wise. Somehow just can't handle money. Though he was never short on controversy, George Carlin had some great insights into religion. I would be more hesitant to play this description of God that he offered, except for I don't think this part is Carlin's commentary on God. It's more about how God is preached and presented in the culture of Western Christianity. And that image didn't come from nowhere. It wasn't born in a vacuum. I consider myself a fairly committed follower of Jesus Christ. You'd hope so, right? But even I don't believe in the God that Carlin describes here. I couldn't really be a part of a belief system that characterizes God as the being we just heard described. That's maybe part of why skeptics doubt. They aren't always doubting God, but the caricature of God that is often painted in movies and comedy sets. It's often also the way that we've treated God in our churches, and up until every church was streaming or on TV, it's the image of God that we'd see a lot of the churches that are presented on television. 
It's a bit like what my friend and colleague Lori Boltemeyer talked about, like God is a, like a, an easily angered Santa in the sky. Like, we'd better not shout, we'd better not cry, we'd better not pout. I'm telling you why the invisible man is watching from the sky. So where do we get these images from? What inspires our popular cultural view of God is this elderly bearded dude who's floating in the clouds. Was that image ever helpful? And if not, what can we do about it? There are all sorts of artistic impressions of God, but the most famous have some things in common. You may have noticed that a great deal of the European painters painted the image of God and Abraham as people with European complexions and features. Even though Eden would have been located squarely in the borders of modern-day Iraq, we just imagine that someone who was formed from the earth and spent the majority of every day in the Middle Eastern sun was probably as tan as a Scandinavian in the winter. In some of these related interpretations of God, the Lord was often viewed in art as royal, a mighty and majestic king. There's an image that many of us have seen. Michelangelo changed that image with his work on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The God he portrayed was an elderly man who happened to be absolutely ripped, straining to hold his relationship with his creation. And this image stuck, and it continues to stick. At first, it wasn't such a bad thing. The God who had been particular to the nation of Israel absolutely wants to be known as the creator of the whole universe and savior of the world. So instead of being seen as just a God of the ancient Near East, the evangelized people in places like Asia and Europe were invited to also picture this God as a God of their nation and a God of their people as well. But that act comes with a bit of a warning. In fact, it comes with a commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 4, we read, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. That was a warning against making false gods, of worshiping something other than the true God of creation. People of faith understand that God made humanity in the divine image. That is a confession of dignity and humility that we have been created in the divine image. It allows us to understand that we are loved, but we're not creations of our own making. And when we start to make God in our image, that becomes an act of pride. So those images, it started off as an opportunity to show that God's love goes beyond a certain geographical region or a certain historical setting can end up locking our images of God into something like Santa Claus in the sky, a kind old man who grants our wishes if we're good or puts coal in our eternal stockings if we're bad. Without a visible God, that's what we've got, and that subjective image is easily manipulated. But God is not invisible. And that takes us to our first lesson. God wants to be seen in both creation and Christ. God wants to be seen in both creation and Christ. Verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. Everything has been created through him and for him. He existed before everything else began, and he holds all creation together. 
One thing I've learned as I interact with people who are doubtful of faith or who are skeptical, skeptics aren't typically atheists. They're usually self-described as agnostics. Intellectually honest people don't usually say they know there isn't a God because it can't be proven empirically. And so the first step is to establish the possibility of a God, some type of God, a being greater than that which we can imagine whose fingerprints are in the created order. Maybe things like beauty and mercy show that. Sometimes this is realized when we note the sheer scope of creation and knowing that we cannot wrap our minds around it, no matter the depth and length of our studies or our capacity to learn. There are certainly things greater than we can imagine at work in the universe. And similarly, we can look at the perfection of conditions for something like intelligent life to exist on a planet like ours. How uniquely ideal is this place called Earth? I mean, maybe the news from early December of last year was absolutely true, and there is alien life that's been in contact with humanity through things like a space federation. I can't know for certain that that's untrue, though I may have my understandable doubts. Regardless, from what we can see and know, there's something remarkable and unique about the way this planet sustains life like ours. Paul, whose conversion to Christ following was nothing short of dramatic, explains it like this in a letter he wrote to the church in Rome. He says, They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. So he's saying there's plenty of evidence to indicate that there is a God, but he doesn't really get into describing the character of that God just yet. Then, through the rest of Romans, he speaks about the character and nature of Jesus, who he calls in this passage from Colossians the visible image of the invisible God. God seen in creation is typically referred to as general revelation. There are some ballpark things that we can know about God just by observing nature. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is referred to as particular revelation. We can't know all there is to know about an infinite God, but we can know enough. Enough to make a choice about the heart of God and the purpose of humanity. And from that, what we believe and who we trust. For those who have come to know Jesus as the fullest, of, fullest expression of God and humanity perfectly enmeshed together, Christ is sufficient revelation about the heart and character of God. And in one of the descriptions of Jesus' life in the Bible written by his friend and follower John, we even read Jesus making this claim about himself. In John 14, we read how Philip, one of his followers, said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. Jesus does make reference to an aspect of God that is beyond our sight, but it's not that God has been purely distant in the heavens. 
Jesus is sometimes called Emmanuel, which we probably know from songs at Christmas like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel translates to mean God with us. If we want to see the character, nature, and heart of God, we can see what we need to see in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And even after we read in Scripture how the back from the dead Jesus rose up to heaven to be seated at his Father's right side, that's not an end to the visibility of God. God wants us to know that there's still more. And that takes us to our second lesson. One calling of the church is to make God visible. One calling of the church is to make God visible. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the first of all who will rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and by him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of his blood on the cross. For better or worse, people see something of God through the church. There was a little boy who was waiting on his mom to come out of the grocery store, and as he waited, he was approached by a man who asked, do you know where the post office is? The little boy replied, sure, go right down the street a couple of blocks and turn to your right. And the man thanked the boy and said, I'm the new pastor in town, and I'd like you to come to church on Sunday. Would you like to know how to get to heaven? To which the boy responded, oh, come on, you don't even know how to get to the post office. See, we're supposed to be the ones who help people find reconciliation, peace, and the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes we can't even find the post office. We're going to talk a little more on this subject in a couple of weeks, but this is an important part of God's visibility. But the church, even in its brokenness, is the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest. I wish the church better reflected the sinless perfection and love of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about St. John's UMC. I'm talking about Christ's church around the world and throughout the ages. For example, as we celebrate the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend, we can see clearly a lot of people were proclaiming the name of Jesus and stood against equality, justice, and integration. And at the same time, it was a selfless demonstration of God's love through Christ followers that moved the cause of civil rights forward in this nation. And that same struggle exists still today. So I can absolutely acknowledge that the church falls short of God's standard. And every morning when I wake up and before I go to bed each night, I pray that God would be merciful with our faults and powerful in transforming us to better reflect that divine love. Because I have seen the church when it does good. In Liberia, I saw the church take the lead in the participation of Christ followers as they rebuilt a nation that was ravaged by civil war. In Nicaragua, I saw people who literally made their living by scavenging from the landfill where they made their home. And I saw them find hope for a better life because Christ followers went into the dump to provide medicine, education, and a way out. I've seen communities torn apart by hurricanes and tornadoes clean up after they find their footing again because the volunteer workforce that poured in with time, tools, talent, and resources that were desperately needed. Right here I see people working in a mission garden that provides tons of fresh vegetables for hungry folks in our area. I see heartbroken people comforted by friends in faith as they walk through difficult roads, but not alone. I see people who don't know about Jesus, yet they've experienced welcome, hospitality, and kindness from people who have been touched themselves by the love of God, and they love to share it with others. And the church isn't perfect, but when the church gets it right, 
It gives us glimmers and glimpses of the heart of God, and it makes the invisible God visible, even if just a little bit. Our third lesson this morning is this. When broken lives are restored, God is visible. When broken lives are restored, God is visible. This includes you who were once so far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has brought you back as his friends. He has done this through his death on the cross in his own human body. As a result, he has brought you into the very presence of God, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I love hearing testimonies of people whose lives are changed because of what God has done in their lives. Sometimes it's a story of a person who has found themselves at rock bottom, and when they cried out for help, they found the healing and the recovery that they needed through something that they can only ascribe to the hand of God. I've seen people who have been dismissed and demeaned their whole lives have an incredible aha moment when they finally realize that they are sufficient and enjoyed in the unconditional love of their God. I've seen people whose relationships are breaking apart and discover the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to them, and it gives them grace to work through the process of forgiveness in their relationship. But I fear one of the reasons that people have a hard time seeing God among us is because some of us will do anything for God except change. We'll do anything but surrender our lives and familiar demons. Or maybe Jesus has brought us a peace and joy that we'd never know otherwise, but we keep it to ourselves. And then the presence of God hasn't seemed to make a difference in our lives, either because we haven't changed a bit or we keep that difference to ourselves. Then how could a watching world expect to see a God who supposedly has the power to transform lives? Church, we're not just imagining an invisible old man who lives in the sky. We're envisioning and embodying lives being restored, creation being redeemed, chains being broken, and a kingdom coming, a love unmatched by anything of the earth. And we get to see it and show it in your life, in our life together as the church, and in Jesus Christ among us. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are so thankful that you have not remained distant and far off, but you have come to us. Lord, we thank you that your presence can still be known among us today through the work of your church as we offer ourselves to you in surrender, through our lives restored by your grace, your forgiveness, and your mercies that come to us newly each morning. And God, we thank you for the love that encourages and empowers us to help make the invisible aspects of who you are better known in this world. We thank you that we get to be a part of this incredible body of Christ, following after Jesus. And God, we pray that you would be seen and known to a world in need of healing and love. We offer ourselves in gratitude in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.